From the opinion pages of the Wall Street Journal, this is Free Expression with Jerry Baker. Hello and welcome to Free Expression from the opinion pages of the Wall Street Journal. I'm Jerry Baker, editor-at-large of the journal. If you're not already a subscriber to Free Expression, please do sign up at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you do your listening. This week, the war in Ukraine and the future of liberal democracy, the West, and political populism. Is the Western model of liberal democracy under siege from a new authoritarian virus sweeping America and Europe? Or has that liberal model simply outlived its usefulness, having weakened the character of Western civilization and undermined the values that made it great? The rise of political figures like Donald Trump in the US and the leaders of conservative populist parties in Europe is a direct challenge to the established political order that has ruled the West since the end of the Second World War. For many voters, the entrenched power of elite cultural, economic and political institutions has worked directly in the last few decades against the values and interests of the people on issues like immigration and national identity, global economic integration, radical social change and issues like sex and gender and family. On all of these, many in the West see themselves as in being in the grip of an ideology that's actively destroying their very identity. So the rise of strongman political figures like Trump is a direct response to these trends, with leaders promising to take on the elites, restore traditional values, and transform their nation's institutions, even if at times that may lead them to clash with traditional democratic ideas. Now, no country has perhaps become a more closely watched model of these new politics than Hungary. To the political left and the establishments in Europe and America, Viktor Orban, the Prime Minister, Viktor Orban's Fidesz party is a menace to democracy. Orban's used his electoral victories to cement his party's power in the judiciary, the media and elsewhere. But to many conservatives, he's a hero, resisting the European Union's open border policies for immigration, aggressively pursuing pro-family measures and seeking to restore traditional Christian values to their place in the West's identity. Unusually for a European leader, he's a big fan of Donald Trump. Trump likes him back. But Orban's also been a rare apologist for Russia's Vladimir Putin and even Xi Jinping of China. Orban's the only Western leader to have shaken hands with Putin since Russia's invasion of Ukraine. He's opposed the EU's support for Kyiv, and he's stalled for more than a year in approving the admission of Sweden to NATO, until actually just this week when the Hungarian parliament finally agreed to the alliance's expansion. So is Hungary a nightmarish vision of the future of a West returning to the days of authoritarian and autocratic rule? Or is it a model of a country that's proved once able to roll back the progressive tide that swept the institutions of the West? And with me to help answer all this is Balas Orban, the Hungarian prime minister's political director and key advisor. Orban, no relation to the prime minister, by the way, has been a member of the national parliament since 2022. Before that was an academic teaching and researching at universities and at a leading conservative think tank. Balash Orban joins me now. Mr. Orban, thanks very much for joining Free Expression. Thank you very much for having me. Since it's very topical, and I think it's on everybody's mind, with uh, the issues of foreign policy, in particular the war in Ukraine and the future of NATO, it was noticeable that this week, finally, after nearly two years, the Hungarian parliament voted to approve Sweden's admission to NATO. What took so long? The other countries were very quick to agree to Sweden's admission to NATO. Why did it take Hungary so long? Well, first, we think it's a serious decision. It's the biggest commitment in international politics what you can make. The NATO treaty is about that we are ready to fight for each other, we are ready to defend each other, and we are ready to die for each other. So this serious commitment cannot make 
in an autopilot mode. And um, in uh, recent years, the Hungarian-Swedish bilateral relations were not the best ones because mainly the liberal political elite of Sweden constantly attacked Hungary on many fields, democracy, rule of law, things like that. And our position from the very first moment was that we are ready to support Sweden-NATO membership, but first we have to talk through these problems and how we will be together in the same alliance structure. So it took some time, but we achieved some goals. The Prime Minister of Sweden visited Hungary. We signed new agreements on military, security, cooperations and research cooperations. And this kind of mutual trust building process went uh, very well. Uh, so this is why the Hungarian parliament could uh, vote in favor of uh, NATO accession. So the cynical view that your prime minister, Mr. Orban, was getting a good deal out of this, particularly of uh, military for the jets from uh, Swedish jet manufacturer, and, and this was all an extended negotiating tactic, that's not fair. No, I don't think so. Obviously, we are very happy with the negotiations and we are very happy with the policy cooperation in the field of military. But it's not about that. It's about whether we Europeans take NATO seriously or not. And we Hungarians, we take NATO very seriously. Like we are among the unfortunately few countries who are having the more than 2% spending on military. This is a requirement which is based on the treaties. In many times, there was a military conflict between Sweden and Russia. And it's a serious commitment from the Hungarian side that we are ready to protect each other and ready to support the Baltic states and the Scandinavian countries on that. But this decision should be made on eye-to-eye mutual respect, which is unfortunately many times lacking in international politics. So everybody says, oh, the big powers say that, you know, like small countries, you don't have any voice on that. You just have to sign everything and accept decisions of the big uh, players immediately. This is not how the sovereign foreign policy thinking of Hungary works. So we have to be very serious on that decisions. And as you say, you take NATO seriously and you are one of the few countries that meets the commitment, the objective to spending more than 2%, at least 2% of GDP on military outlays. And yet your prime minister, Mr. Orban, has sought and achieved very close relationships with Vladimir Putin of Russia, has been, and we'll talk a little bit more about this if we may, you know, has been very critical of the response of the West, of NATO, and of EU countries in terms of supporting Ukraine. But the reason for this expansion of NATO, which included Finland and now Sweden, as you say, came about these long-standing countries, particularly in Sweden's case, historically neutral country, came about because they suddenly realized they felt very much under threat from Russia after the invasion of Ukraine two years ago. How much of a threat is Russia to NATO then, in your view, given that you take NATO very seriously? Do you see, despite the good relations that Hungary and Russia seem to have. Do you think that Russia is a threat to the genuine ongoing threat to the security of NATO countries? First of all, according to our understanding, the NATO and Russia now is not in a war with each other. So there is no NATO requirement to go a war against Russia now. And according to our understanding, it should remain like this. According to our understanding, NATO is a guarantee of freedom and stability in the region. Russia would not attack any NATO country. NATO is far stronger than Russia. The Hungarian interest is also obvious. We have to have a country or a buffer zone or something between Hungary and Russia, according 
to our historical experiences, if that wasn't the case, it caused um, a security problem for us. But we are not in favor of the continuation of the current war and not in favor of the involvement of NATO as a defense organization. So I understand that the Hungarian position is complex, but it's not so complicated as I understand. We think that NATO has a value. We think that NATO can play a positive role in the security of Europe, but European countries should take their part. So it's not working that only United States is guaranteeing security for European countries. European countries should take that part. NATO is stronger than Russia. Russia would not attack any NATO country, so there is no imminent threat about that. And the war itself, what is going on in Ukraine, it goes against the interest, according to our understanding, of European countries and definitely Hungary. And there is no military solution for that conflict. So we should get back to the negotiations table as soon as we can get and not go into the further line of escalation. Why do you say that the war in Ukraine is of no real concern to the national security of Hungary or indeed of NATO countries? No, no, no. I haven't said this. I said that the continuation of the war, it's a security threat for Hungary because the potentially of escalation is imminent, is there. It can happen every day. The involvement of NATO countries can happen every day. And no one is able to keep under control this uh, military conflict. And this military conflict, according to our understanding, leads to nowhere. 500,000 people died and still there is no solution or there is no possible end game of this. So we think that our biggest <laughs> short-term security threat now is the continuation of the war. We are hosting thousands and thousands of refugees on a daily basis. The European economy is declining. The competitiveness, we are losing. The electric prices are skyrocketing. People are suffering, not only in Ukraine, but in the entire region. The farmers are protesting in each and every Central European country. So this is the real challenge for us in the short term. You say it's important to get a negotiated settlement as soon as possible in Ukraine. Presumably any negotiated settlement now would leave Russia in control of significant portions of what was at least pre-2014 Ukrainian territory. Primia obviously maybe significant portions of eastern Ukraine in the Donbass area. Is that something that you regard as acceptable? That a country like Russia could simply attain by force the territory of another country? It's not about what I think, because it's about reality. From the very first moment, we are saying that it's an unjustified attack against Ukraine. It goes against international law. We try to support Ukraine in various spheres, humanitarian field, economically, also from energy sovereignty point of view. But the reality on the battlefield is that Ukraine is losing more and more territories and the negotiation potential of Ukraine, it's not getting better by the war, but it's getting worse. So this is something which we should take into uh, consideration. And the Ukrainian army, unfortunately, now is a very bad shape and the pressure on that army is growing. And what we keep saying is that there is no such thing that you have a peace proposal which you introduce and then it's immediately accepted by all the players. First, should get back to the tables and agree on a short-term ceasefire and then to a long-term ceasefire and then to organize peace conferences, which will be a long 
and very hard and very complicated negotiation, not only between Ukrainians and Russians, but Ukrainians, Russians, Europeans and Americans. And we should find a long-term sustainable solution for this conflict, whether we like it or not. This is the only way out. The sooner it comes, is the better for everybody. Your Prime Minister, Mr Orban, is one of the few leaders of NATO, I think the only leader of NATO actually who's met Vladimir Putin since the invasion of Ukraine and certainly in the recent, in the last year or so. Does he have a sense of what the terms of a negotiation might look like that Putin might agree to? Our recommendation for all our partners always first start with a small step. Maintain and restore communication and then agree on a short-term ceasefire and use that window of opportunity to first discuss the framework for the negotiations and then start the further negotiations. So always one step forward. This is how you make peace. Everybody pretends that no one has any idea how to do it, but actually all the conflicts what we had in the 20th century and the 21st century ended with this methodology, which is very well known by everybody. Honestly, they don't want to start it yet. But uh, the sooner we start it, it's the better for everybody. Wouldn't it be better, though, for Ukraine if there is to be a negotiated settlement? And I think a lot of people do agree with you on that, that ultimately there will have to be some kind of a negotiation. Would it be better for Ukraine to be negotiating that from a position of strength? That is, from a position in which it has, you know, continues to receive considerable military support, particularly from the rest of NATO, from the US and the rest of NATO, considerable support, support which Hungary has opposed. Because if it doesn't have that military wherewithal that it's had for the last two years to continue the fight, what would be the value, what would be the point for Vladimir Putin of sitting down and negotiating if he thinks he can attain by force from a weakened and increasingly weakened Ukraine? What would be the point of him sitting down to a negotiation when actually he could, could just continue the war and presumably take more of Ukraine, achieve more of what he wants by force? But Mr. Bacon, I can understand that it's a potential problem, but we have one additional problem, which is about us, that many of the Western world leaders, they don't want negotiations now. They don't want to close the conflict now. They want further military confrontation on that. So I don't know anything about Putin's intention or Putin's strategy on that uh, or willingness to sit down. But what I see that among the Western leaders, there is no majority of sitting down. But actually the majority in the European Council and from the United States is the opposite keep continue fighting, which will lead us to more devastating effects in Ukraine, more people dying, and no one knows what will be the outcome and what will be the result, the positive result from the Western side on that. We're going to take a break there, but when we come back, I'll have more with Balas Orban, senior politician in Hungary, about that country's approach to social and economic issues and whether or not it might be a model for conservatives around the world. Stay with us. WSJ Special Access gives you a front row seat to some of the Wall Street Journal's most exciting content, like The Quirkier Side of Life, a new series that features the fun, surprising stories our reporters come across. The chief executive walks 10,000 barefoot steps every day. He recalls stepping on a bee, which put him off earthing for a couple of days, but he got back to it. Check out The Quirkier Side of Life on WSJ Special Access, only for WSJ subscribers. You're listening to Free Expression with Jerry Baker. Don't forget, you can listen to the latest episode anytime on your smart speaker. Just say, play the Opinion Free Expression podcast. Now, back to Jerry Baker. 
Welcome back. I'm speaking with Balas Orban, political director to the Prime Minister of Hungary. We're talking about the West, what's gone wrong, and whether or not the model in Hungary could be the right way to go. All right, let's move on because I really want to talk to you about Hungary and the political performance of the Fidesz party and the way in which Fidesz has, has changed Hungary in the last few years. As you well know, Hungary is often held up by liberals in the West, by sort of progressives in the West, rest of Europe, particularly by the EU and by liberals in this country, including by members of the Joe Biden's administration. It's a kind of authoritarian regime. They talk about a anti-democratic, where the rule of law has been undermined, where the media has been suppressed, where the judiciary has been essentially subverted to achieve the aims that the Fidesz party wants. And that Hungary, somehow, this model represents a threat to the ideals of Western liberal democracy. What's your response to that? I think Hungary Hungary represent a threat not on democracy, but on liberal policies. And this is true, because since 2010, our government has dedicated all its efforts to build up a national conservative alternative of liberal progressive Western governments. And we are very successful on that. Our family policy is working. The GDP of Hungary tripled, the taxes went down, the unemployment rate went down, the number of marriages went up, number of divorces went down. So all the social and economic factors shows that it's possible to have a dedicated, clear-cut, conservative government with conservative policies introduced and the country can be successful. And this is a real threat on liberal progressive values because all their bad decisions can be questioned on that basis. This is why they have to go against Hungary. And their toolkit is the usual toolkit. They use all the accusations against Hungary, what they use against all the conservative forces here in the United States. You know, Donald Trump and his people are authoritarian people, according to the liberal media. Same in Italy, same in Poland, same in France, same in Germany. And the usual toolkit against Hungary. The only exception is, or the only difference is that Hungary, this conservative government, is for a long time in power and supported by the big majority of the Hungarian people. So the accusations against Hungary are not just false, but also undemocratic in that sense. Hungary's been in dispute with the European Union over a lot of these things. Oh, in particular, the EU that slowed the release of funds that Hungary was entitled to until it made certain, claiming it needed to make judicial reforms, claiming that your government, the government of which you're part, is undermining the rule of law and the independence of the judiciary. And they cited, obviously, examples where they believe this is the case. Does Hungary actually have the rule of law and an independent judiciary? Yes, of course, just like every other European country. But the last years, they've proven 100% that these so-called rule of law procedures are just part of the political witch hunt. So it has nothing to do with the current level of rule of law. Ursula von der Leyen, the president of the commission, said it openly in front of the parliament that Hungary will not get its entire funds until they change their migration policy and the gender policy. In Poland, there is a new government and immediately there are no rule of law concerns without changing any kind of regulation, only against Hungary. In Slovakia, a new sovereignist uh, government came into power, immediately rule of law concerns. So it's for everybody who is following that process closely, for everybody it's getting obvious that it's a misuse of EU treaties. It's a political witch hunt against conservative governments. And the problem is not a Hungarian problem because we will survive anyhow. The problem is that it undermines the integrity 
and the future of the European integration. So if we want to stick together, European Union, in these turbulent geopolitical times, we have to stick to the treaties and not let progressive liberal ideologies overtake the European institutions, as it's happening now. I think a lot of conservatives, particularly you know, conservative readers of the Wall Street Journal, would admire some of the stances you've taken, particularly on strengthening your border, which is obviously a great concern here in the United States, the influx of migrants creating huge problems. Your government's taken a very tough stand on that. But tell us some of the other things you've done. You mentioned pro-family policies and the fact that you've reduced the divorce rate, increased the marriage rate, which obviously, again, is in the interest of social cohesion. Can you just tell us some of the policies that Fides has implemented? Migration is, I think, important. If you have a willingness to protect your borders, then you can do so. So if you are not able to protect your borders, then there is no willingness. This is how the logic works. We obviously say no to illegal migration. We have a very tough and successful measures on our southern borders. This is one significant point. We organized a referendum in two 2022 against gender propaganda in schools and kindergartens and actually more Hungarian people, even those who are supporting the opposition, voted against gender propaganda in kindergartens and in schools. More people voted against it than previously voted in favor of European Union membership in Hungary. And it's obviously interlinked to that, the family policy. As I mentioned you earlier, we spend more than 2% of our GDP on military policy, but we spend twice as much, more than 4% of the Hungarian GDP on family policies. But we support traditional families, men and women who want to have children. We try to support them financially and in various fields. And there is another element, law and order. Every country should be able to protect its borders and keep the streets clean and restore and protect public safety. And this is an era where, on which the Hungarian government used to be very successful. I think all of these areas, Mr. Orban, would be areas, I think, where conservatives, particularly in this country, would strongly agree and would love to see those policies implemented here in many of the things you've talked about. I suppose the question people do have, though, sometimes is whether or not you're going about this in a kind of an illiberal way. I mean, there's been criticism, for example, about the extent to which maybe the press has been constrained in Hungary. Do you think you genuinely have a free press? You've been criticized for this by international organizations. Is there a free press where people can express themselves? themselves freely for and against the various things that the government's doing? Well, it depends on how do you identify free press. I think that free press means pluralism. So free press means that you can find a big variety of opinions, very different opinions on very different sides. And this is what we have in Hungary. And this is something which is criticized by many conservatives, that it's not anymore the case in Western societies. So I think compared to many Western countries, the Hungarian press is more free because you can find liberal anti-governmental opinion on one hand, but then on the other hand, conservative pro-governmental opinions. So I think media freedom is about that huge variety of opinion is available for all of the people and they can make their decision freely. And this is an environment what you have in Hungary. Very harsh, very strong anti-governmental voices and very strong conservative voices. And compared to how the media freedom and situation looks like in many Western countries, I would say that probably the situation is much better in Hungary than in elsewhere. Obviously, the liberals like to maintain a hegemony where you have one narrative, one opinion, 
one mainstream argumentation in the most important issues, and it's not questioned by anybody who can be taken seriously. But uh, according to our understanding, this is not what freedom should look like. To be clear, you believe in a pluralist society where people are free to express different views, different cultural ideas can thrive. That all takes yes. place in Hungary, does it? That's yes, all, that's and all there is a combat of ideas. Yeah probably even in a more visible way than in many Western countries. Tell us, what are the lessons? You're actually in Washington right now, I think, and been talking to various policymakers and officials. And as you look at the world, you look at Europe and you look at the world and you look at many people, as we've said in this podcast, we've talked about this, how many people I think do want to achieve some of the things that you've achieved in Hungary. Do you think this is an approach that is a model for other conservative movements around the world, including here in the US? Uh, well, we are a small country. So our responsibility goes on our people. So we don't want to save the world. We want to save ourselves. But we are ready to find allies because we have global challenges and the world order is uh, shifting. And the countries which are coming up with the sovereign, independent and visible strategy are the only ones which can be successful in this environment. And I'm grateful that the conservative movement is getting stronger and stronger and we can identify more and more points on which we can work on together. And I hope that the world will not go into a direction where we have to be prepared for global confrontations, wars, sanctioning, decoupling, you know, block formation logic, but the other way around, the Hungarian strategy is based on peace, mutual respect, connectivity and openness and being respectful towards everybody. This is our offer. And on this basis, we are looking for friends. And finally, uh, Mr. Robin, it sounds like you're kind of talking almost about a, not only a pluralism, but a pluralism internationally. And, and I want to ask you there about uh, maybe, again, even those who are strongly supportive of you and admire some of the things that you've done, well, are a little concerned that your prime minister, again, Mr. Orban, seeks good relations with Russia, despite what Russia's done, has a good relationship and looks like he's, you know, again, he seems to be much closer to China than, than certainly the people in the US and in much of Europe are looking for, looking for a more constructive relationship. Is that something that runs against the tide of your conservative philosophies, having these good relations with these, frankly, autocratic and very undemocratic regimes? I think it's not, because it's not going against our the conservative principles. Because if you take seriously the idea of national conservatism, it means that you realize that there are different political structures because the countries are different, because the civilizations are different. So we Hungarians, we don't want to live under a Chinese type of political system or a Russian type of political system. But we don't want to promote our system either. So we just want to find our way to survive. And for this, we need to cooperate on a practical basis with everybody because this is how a Hungarian economy can thrive and Hungarian people can have a prosperous uh, future. So my view is if you take seriously the idea of national sovereignty and national conservatism, which is based on nations with different history, different geography, different practical everyday problems, then you will find uh, different behaviors. And the task is not to convince each other that we should follow somebody else's directions, but identify the connection points on which 
we can have mutually beneficiary relationships with everybody. It sounds like what somebody once called in back in the Cold War, the Sinatra Doctrine, everybody should do it my way. <laughs> yes, but old ideas probably can be reinvented for future as well. All right. Balas Orban, political director of the Prime Minister of Hungary, thank you very much for joining Free Expression. Thank you very much, Jerry Baker. Well, that's it for this week. I'll be back with another episode of Free Expression next week. Thanks very much for joining us. In the meantime, have a great week. 